This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. In the early days of the National Football League, it was not uncommon for pro teams to take on non-league teams from anywhere or at any time. Hi, I'm Joe Ziemba, and welcome to this episode of When Football Was Football, when we're going to talk about the Chicago Cardinals and the first road trip. We'll call it Go West, Young Man. If a local club could offer a decent guarantee, it could almost guarantee that the pros would show up for a bit of cash and hopefully an easy victory. And if that same pro team could string together one or more games in a particular geographic area, they might call it a tour and then take their chances against several local clubs without the benefit of scouting reports or specific game-related information. Not that they might need it. Perhaps the most famous of the early tours were the two trips taken by the Chicago Bears to conclude the 1925 season. This is when the infamous Red Grange bolted from the University of Illinois immediately after his final college game and signed with the Bears. With Grange in tow, the Bears headed east to finish up the 1925 schedule and then initiated a second tour to the south and the west to grab as much exposure and cash with the widely heralded Red Grange on the roster. These two trips may have saved the struggling NFL as Grange and the Bears attracted record crowds for many of the games. And for the first time, NFL teams regularly played in front of sold-out stadiums. It took the crosstown Chicago Cardinals a few years to duplicate that type of gridiron rendezvous. The Cardinals finished the 1934 NFL campaign with a 5-6 record, or 9-6 overall, despite playing eight league games on the road and employing mostly rookies at a majority of the positions throughout that season. In an effort to build on the late season success of the team and to provide more training for the young club, Owner Charles Bidwell scheduled an extensive postseason tour immediately after the completion of the NFL schedule. The squad, along with assorted coaches and assistants, headed west with the first game scheduled in Kansas City on December 2, 1934. The largest crowd, which was only 3,500, to watch a pro game in Kansas that year was on hand as the Cards knocked off the Kansas City Blues, the champions of the American Football League, 13-7, thanks to a pair of interceptions returned for touchdowns by Bob Newman of the Cardinals. The highlight of the game was not on the field, but in the stands, according to the Kansas City Star, when the frigid fans were greeted by a PA announcement which stated, Mr. Elf Lafferty, your office is on fire. Cheers and laughter broke out in the crowd. Bring some of the fire down here, one fan shouted. We need it more than his office, another volunteered. Well, forgetting the heat or lack thereof on December 5th, the Cardinals moved over to Oklahoma and defeated the Tulsa Oilers 20-7. Shifting further west, the Cards next devoured the Stanford Braves 37-2 in Los Angeles before 12,000 fans on Sunday, December 9th. The only two points scored by the losers came on one of the wackiest plays in Cardinals history, as described by the Los Angeles Illustrated Daily News. And bear with us on this one. Here we go. The paper said, 
Shortly afterward came the goofiest play ever seen on the Southland gridiron. Forbes of the Braves punted to Sorbo on the cards 35. Sorbo lateraled far across the field to Russell, who in turn lateraled to Tipton. The latter lateraled back to Russell, and Russell lateraled to Sorbo, the originator of the play, who was standing inside his own five-yard line. Sorbo, in slinging still another lateral all the way across the field back to Russell, rounded the ball in the end zone and gave the Bears a safety. Phew. Football, 1934. Then on December 16th, the Cardinals stifled the Southern California Maroons 41-7 behind Doug Russell's three scores before 16,000 in Los Angeles. So they're getting some nice, decent crowds on this trip. While the Cardinals' offense was efficient, the Daily News was excited over the blocking of big lineman Bill Volek. Aspit, one of the Southern California players, came over to cover the runner, but a large gentleman by the name of Bill Volek mowed him down with considerable eclat. That's E-C-L-A-T, and no, I never heard of that word before either. Volek played a smashing game all afternoon, how he smacked him. So the Cardinals remained in Los Angeles and disposed of the UCLA alumni team 17-7 on December 20th before heading north and tripping the California Giants 21-0 on December 23rd in San Francisco. The game program for the final contest in San Francisco noted the success of the Cardinals' stay earlier in Los Angeles and marveled at the tenacity of Coach Paul Schistler's group, saying... There's one thing about this Chicago bunch, they don't give up or give any quarter at all during the course of the game. In this respect, they are just like a college team in that they have plenty of spirit and lots of drive. Given 60 minutes in which to perform, they do their job and do it thoroughly. Well, the tour was scheduled to conclude in San Francisco, but another game was set with the San Joaquin All-Stars for New Year's Day in Fresno, California. When the promoter, however, was unable to provide the Cardinals with the requisite advance as promised, the the players voted not to participate, which later earned the team a lawsuit from promoter Jim Mellon. Instead, a lucrative game was scheduled on January 13th with the powerful Chicago Bears who were on their own West Coast tour. The Bears had just been defeated for the NFL title by the New York Giants. The Bears were heavily favored to defeat the Giants in that title game and led 10-3 at halftime on an extremely icy field. New York returned for the second half with the players wearing gym shoes instead of cleats, and the improved traction helped the Giants claim the championship with a surprising 30-13 victory. This became known as the famous sneakers game and still holds a lofty position in NFL lore and legend. The warm Southern California setting for another meeting between the rival Bears and Cardinals seemed ironic. Here were two bitter foes accustomed to seeing each other in cold winter conditions, now preparing for this exhibition game as if it was for the NFL championship. Both teams had also hoped to engage the touring NFL champion Giants before heading back to Chicago. The Bears-Cardinals game began drawing nationwide interest and the Chicago Tribune's George Schaefer reported from Los Angeles that both squads had compelling reasons for wanting to prevail in this game. He said, 
The Bears want to demonstrate that it was a mistake in New York last month when the Giants overcame the Chicago team's commanding early lead and romped off with the National Pro Football League Championship by defeating Hellas's team 30-13. In the meantime, the Chicago Cardinals are looking for a little revenge of their own. Their coach, Paul Schistler, thinks the Cardinals now muster a strength considerably over their playing performances during the Pro League campaign of last autumn. And what the Bears hope and finally expect to do to the Giants, Schistler and his young new team hope they can do to the Chicago Bears. While the Bears cranked up the emotion and practice the week before the game in an attempt to recapture their midseason form, Schistler eased up on the Cardinals and reverted to light drills and plenty of pep talks. Harvey Woodruff wrote in the Chicago Tribune, Thoroughly acclimated and in good condition for nearly six weeks on the Pacific Coast, where they overwhelmed all local and pro opposition, the Cardinals regard this game as their great chance to even up old scores. In fact, they remained here two weeks for just this chance. Indeed, the Cardinals had lost twice to the Bears during the 1934 season and were eager for some postseason revenge. Prior to the game, the two teams haggled over both officials as well as their recent player additions to both squads. Pretty commonplace for the Bears and the Cardinals to argue before and during and after the games. The squads finally met on Sunday, January 13th at Gilmore Stadium in Los Angeles. With 15,000 in the stands and pro golfer Walter Hagen and comedian Joe E. Brown watching from the Bears' bench, the Cardinals slipped away with a 13-9 victory. Halfback Homer Griffin did the most damage with an 80-yard run in the first quarter for the Cardinals, while quarterback Paul Pardoner drop-kicked two field goals for the Cards. The Chicago Tribune explained more about the atmosphere of the contest, stating, Because of the larger number of former Coast performers on the Cardinals, the crowd rooted for them and booed the officials generously, although the penalties for unnecessary roughness were divided. Several times the boys appeared overzealous, but no fisticuffs developed. Coast critics call it the roughest game of the season here. The Hollywood Citizen from Los Angeles added, What a fight it was, that ball game, and what a banging match that at one time looked as though it would end up in fisticuffs. But the players calmed down, and naught came of the approach to fisticuffs when the melee was bitterest. The shocking win over the Bears and the success of the overall tour left the young Cardinals with both confidence and experience. Although the team had just completed a rugged 21-game schedule with a decent 15-6 record, everyone was anxious for the 1935 season to begin. The offense was running smoothly and the defense remained solid. Pro football itself was booming. Nearly 1 million fans witnessed the 58-game NFL game season in 1934, and the Associated Press announced that its annual poll of sports editors indicated that the growth of pro football was the most noticeable of all sports. Well, the glowing future of the Chicago Cardinals dimmed slightly just a month later when coach Paul Schistler suddenly resigned on February 7, 1935. Citing financial considerations, Schistler explained the reasons for his decision. He said, When I signed a contract with owner Dr. David Jones in 1933, I was hired for a rather nominal salary. However, I was supposed to receive a percentage of the profits. 
This arrangement was satisfactory, except there have been no profits. I can't afford to continue coaching the Cardinals for the present salary. And so he was gone. Overall, the Cardinals captured seven straight wins on the tour, which followed the season-ending 6-0 decision over the Green Bay Packers. The team then began the 1935 season, including exhibitions, with four victories and a tie, meaning that the Cardinals ran off a combined 13 straight games without defeat in 1934 and 1935. Of course, the majority of those successful outings were procured against non-NFL opponents, but it is the longest undefeated streak in team history. So did the 1934-35 tour help the 1935 Cardinals? Eh, maybe. The team never scored more than 14 points in any league game in 1935, but still finished with an acceptable 6-4-2 record in the NFL for the year. Thank you for joining us for this episode of When Football Was Football. We hope you'll join us next time for a look at the amusing story of a man who might have been the best quarterback in the history of the Chicago Bears, but who was also the shortest. And it was not Doug Flutie. Well, anyway, best wishes for the new year from all of us at the Sports History Network. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.